It's Wednesday, March the 2nd, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. I'm not the only uh, fellow doing uh, podcasting these days, though. And if you don't believe me, go to the Hoover website and check it for yourself. Uh, We are at www.hoover.org. Very easy to find our podcast. You go to the uh, Publications tab, then you click on that. And then on the left side of your screen, you'll see Podcast. You click on that. You'll find Econ Talk, Law Talk, The Grumpy Economist, the audio, audio version of The Goodfellows Show that I do. Uh, you can subscribe to, any, subscribe to any or all of them if you want to. You can also subscribe to what we call our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best work of Hoover to your inbox uh, once a month. Hoover Podcast, just one part of Ideas Defining a Free Society. My guest today is my colleague, Paul Gregory. Paul Gregory is a Hoover Institution Research Fellow, as well as the Colin Professor Emeritus in the Department of Economics at the University of Houston, a Research Fellow at the German Institute for Economic Research in Berlin, and Emeritus Chair of the International Advisory Board of the Kiev School of Economics. As you're about to hear, he has both a professional and personal stake at what's transpiring in Ukraine, Russia, and Eastern Europe. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Glad to be here. Let's see where this leads us. Okay. Well, it's going to lead us in this way. I think we should start by talking a bit about you, Paul Gregory, and your family and uh, how you developed an interest in this corner of the world. Um, Let's start with your father, who uh, you and I did. uh, Listeners should know that Paul and I did a podcast a couple of years ago on Paul's connection to, of all things, the Kennedy assassination. No, Paul Paul was not on the grassy knoll or anything like that. His father had a tie. Paul, talk about how your father uh, came about embracing the Russian language. Well, he was born in um, Siberia, in the small town on the Trans-Siberian. His father was an, uh, a rail engineer, he got caught up in the Russian Civil War as a teenager. His brother was a, an officer, escaped to um, Manchuria and then on to Japan, where he somehow got into the American school in Japan and ended up at Berkeley to become a uh, mining engineer. So um, so he left Russia, let's say, at age 18, 19, spoke Russian then for three or four years. So I, he, he grew up as a Russian speaker and retained his language throughout his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And not to give away the whole podcast we did before, but long story short, your father was in Dallas. You were, you know, your, your family was in Dallas in 1963, and your father was, of all things, tutoring Lee Harvey Oswald's wife, right? Uh, no, uh, he taught Russian as taught a volunteer Russian. at the local library in right. Fort Worth. Lee, Har- Lee Oswald came to visit him to get mm-hmm. a certificate of language proficiency. Yeah. And um, I then uh, started to meet regularly with Marina and Lee uh, just to improve my own Russian. And um, so it's quite a shock when on November 22nd, 63, I saw him being brought in handcuffed. But as you say, that's, this is another story. It's a true story. Folks, go look in the archives of, uh, of our website. You'll find it there. I kid you not. Paul Gregory actually knew Lee Harvey Oswald. So <laughs> go figure. Uh, by the way, I'll, uh, Bill, I'll put in a plug because the book is now going to be a book which will be published, I think, in November. Okay. Well, we'll have to have you on the show again and talk about that in November because America just can't give up the Kennedy assassination, can it? The, uh, I, I was told by my Hoover historian fellows, you must write this. This is history. Okay. Let's talk about uh, today's uh, generation of Gregory's. First of all, Paul, your relationship with the Russian language. Well, through my father, uh, I grew up 
not proficient, but semi-proficient in Russian. And I actually got a degree in Russian or a minor and then a MA in Russian at University of Oklahoma. Uh, and then uh, I studied Soviet economics at Harvard. And uh, then Russian language material became really a big part of my research career. So if you look at my research record, a good 50 to 60 percent of it is on Russian and uses Russian sources. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. And so now your children and grandchildren, their relationship with the Russian language. Well, I must uh, also give a plug to the fact that I am at Hoover Institution, which has perhaps the richest collection of Russian materials on earth. So right. I, I don't want that unsaid. My uh, Of my two sons, one son was very interested in uh, heritage and the Russian language. And uh, he uh, studied economics, then got a consulting job. And that consulting job sent him to uh, Ukraine. So I would say over the last um, 10, 15 years, he's he's lived uh, 10 of those in Ukraine mm-hmm. and um, married a Ukrainian wife. Uh, they unfortunately divorced after two children, remarried, uh, or married a second Ukrainian wife, the current wife, again, two kids. So I'm now living in a Russian-speaking household uh, with um, Russian-speaking kids, uh, nine and uh, four. So my Russian is improving considerably. And you have a granddaughter, I believe she's 16 years old, Paul, and she is in Kiev. Let's get to her story. When did Kiev become Kiev? To tell the truth, I don't know the date. Uh, it became a matter of uh, national pride. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Kiev School of Economics, of which I'm on the board still, uh, used to be called the Kiev, K-I-E-V School mm-hmm. of Economics. And then... Uh, I learned you don't say that anymore, you say, or you don't spell it that way anymore. Instead, uh, it is K-Y-I-V, and I notice uh, the pronunciation has not changed, but many of the news people call Kiev, right. and it is Kiev. Um, also, um, linguistically, you don't say the U- Ukraine. That's, that's sort of an insult here. You say Ukraine. So those are linguistic changes that have occurred. Okay, now let's talk about the granddaughter. She's 16 years old and she is in Kiev. First of all, is she safe? How is she? I wish I could say she she were safe. Uh, she, and I don't wanna go into details about location, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I would say her location in, in Kiev is not good. Um, that the, she is fortunate, she and her mother are fortunate that the building they live in has a war shelter mm-hmm. or a bomb shelter from World War II. So she's spending her nights in that uh, shelter. Uh, fortunately, uh, telephone service, uh, Wi-Fi are still working. So we're able to talk every day. And uh, so I've talked to her this morning. And um, what she is experiencing, unless she's trying to shield me is not as bad as what you would think from the news broadcast. She doesn't hear very much in terms of uh, bombardment. Uh, the, uh, the air raid siren goes off 
usually around evening. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, she's not seen hand to hand. She's not seen street to street combat. Uh, she has heard, you know, well, I guess yesterday she could not avoid hearing the, uh, the bomb hitting the um, a TV tower near Bobby Yar right. uh, Memorial. So um, the, the problem is, and this is a problem faced by all, and I do want to talk about this, is um, you don't really know where to go if you were to leave Kiev. And there, there are these terrible jams that you encounter, which turn a three-hour drive into a two, two or three-day drive mm -hmm. where you have to worry about gasoline. I had a long talk with her mother this morning about uh, leaving, uh, which we both recognize is not an easy decision because you don't know what's going to happen out on the streets. You might encounter Russian columns or something like that. But uh, part of uh, the motivation for not leaving is it would be a bad signal if the, if the Kievans were to leave en masse, that shows we're giving up. So that seems to be a big factor. And her mother says, uh, if worse comes to worse, they somehow will make it to the safer part of Ukraine, which is in the West and wait there, and then she's going to come back and help the re reconstruction effort. So that's, symbi that's symptomatic of, of the way many, many uh, Ukrainians feel. So it's, it's remarkable. It is. Uh, I believe it was Brett Stevens, Paul, writing in the New York Times, who suggested the creation of a refugee corridor. Uh, I think the, the Vatican is in favor of that as well, so let's hope that would happen. Uh, if there were a safe corridor, then I would really be insistent on leaving. Uh, but at this point, there is not. And my daughter-in-law said that uh, that I think right now there's only one one uh, highway le leading out of out of Kiev. So you can imagine the traffic on that one. I can. So let's uh, talk about information. First of all, are you surprised that Putin has not managed to disable Twitter and social media? In other words, there, there are certain principles to modern warfare. I, we, we're Americans. We're used to what we call shock and awe or the Powell principle of fighting, Paul, which is that you go on with overwhelming force and you just disable your enemy right away. You bring in enough troops just to swarm, but then you also begin the campaign by blinding them and deafening them and you take out their communications apparatus. But here we are in the midst of this fighting now for you know several days now, uh, and we still see these very vivid images coming live from the capital, which which you know things that make the Russians look very bad. So, are you surprised that Putin has done a pretty lousy job of controlling the pictures of this? Well, I, I would address this in in two ways, uh, and so keep me on track. One is, I think the most important issue of all: what are the Russian people hearing? Yeah, right. The second is. Uh, how is the war being covered? Is, is there the usual um, disinformation going on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I, I think the more important of those issues is um, what are the Russian people hearing? Right. And, and I, I spend a lot of time reading what they're hearing mm -hmm. uh, through, through main, uh, there's the Putin uh, press, Right. There's a very small um, liberal press, 
three publications and I read them regularly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those three publications are both, uh, they are tolerated because it's sort of a safety valve and they don't get much of an audience. But if you read them, it's as if you were reading a Western publication as to what's going on. I assume they're the all in Russian. Russian. I assume Paul, they're all in Russian and Cyrillic, and so a Westerner could not could not read them unless he he or she knew Russian, or they come in English versions. That, that no, it's it's uh, largely in Russian. Mm-hmm. You need to know what you're doing, uh, but someone without Russian can learn a lot by hitting um, Google Translate and hit English. Okay, a, a, a number of them do have that facility, but the, the talk, uh, the interviews, et cetera, et cetera, you really need to know uh, Russian. You said there are but three. Let pub- me tell you. Go ahead. I said you said there are three publications, Paul. What what are they? Uh, Echo Moscow, mm-hmm. uh, New Gazette. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the third one? Um, Echo Moscow, New, New Gazette. Uh, it'll come to me. Uh, I, I know it quite well. Um, both, uh, all of them have been, uh, and uh, when you go on them, the first thing you see is this site has been declared by the pr- procurator general of the, of the, uh, of Russia have been declared by the uh, procurator general of Russia to be the work of a foreign agent. So I know, I know, I know, I know one of those sites, Paul, because I read your blog, which uh, for our listeners is called what Paul Gregory is writing about. And I'll give you the uh, URL for that at the end of the broadcast. But uh, you actually posted um, a a link to it on Saturday, Paul. Uh, This would be New Gazette, or I think in Russian, you may correct me here. I think it's Novaya Gazeta. And uh, what struck me, Paul, was a photo on it. And it was a photo, Paul, of a Russian soldier, a dead Russian soldier in front of an armored vehicle. And you know what caught my attention to that, Paul? You couldn't tell if that was 2022 or 1942. It is reminiscent of 42. And to me, that photograph could become iconic mm-hmm. as symbolic of what's going on. Uh, the Ukrainian government has, has chosen or advises those who write uh, uh, in its behalf not to distribute such things. Uh, they're, they're disconcerting, they're not good for the squeamish, uh, which is perhaps good publicity, but it also shows the humanitarian streak. Those Russian soldiers, that body that you're seeing, is probably of, of a 20-year-old kid who uh, was drafted and was taken to the Ukrainian border, and this is a very typical story, taken mm-hmm. to the Ukrainian border and uh, forced to sign a so-called contract making him a contract soldier, because until he is a contract soldier, you're, he is not supposed to serve in a combat area. So most of the Russian mothers of soldiers, and by the way, once you sign that contract and go into combat, you cannot, if they take your cell phone away, you cannot communicate with your family. So the mothers of soldiers, and there are, uh, committees of Russian of mother Russian mothers of soldiers 
they don't know. They don't know where their son is. They don't know if their son's alive or dead. Uh, notably, there was a leak, I think, to ITV in the UK that lists all the uh, 120,000 soldiers who are serving in, uh, in, in Ukraine. And I think those who are in possession of that list are trying to figure out how to get it to these mothers. Yeah. So they at least know, know where their son is, much less whether the son is alive or dead, but at least they would learn from that uh, whether their son is or is not in Ukraine. Right. Now, some of these soldiers are talking, Paul, and these stories turn out to be true. And they keep saying the same thing, which is that we didn't realize we we're invading Ukraine. We thought this was just an exercise. And, you know, we could we could spend time on the Russian military if you want to. But I think what's more germane, though, is the idea that, you know, we think of Russia as a very closeted society and Putin at all times is controlling media and message. But yet, for something like that to get out and to appear in the Western media, a Russian soldier saying that we, we had no idea what was going on here. It's just astonishing to see that, Paul. Yes, uh, which shows that this, this is a war that will be fought in front of cameras, mm-hmm. unlike the Chechen wars, what's going on in Syria. Whether this will constrain Putin or not, I don't know, because there are occasions when he just... Um, does not even think about the the brutality of what he is ordering. So, but I'm hoping the fact that it that it is uh, playing out in front of cameras will be will be helpful. Right. So there is um, a lot of questions as to why the Biden administration has put out so much intelligence um, on Russia's intentions. Before the invasion began, the administration was telegraphing, saying, we believe he's going to go in this weekend, always trying to be a step ahead of Putin. And there are two schools of thought here, Paul. One is they were just trying to throw Putin off his game, both in terms of planning, but also psychologically. He finds out that we have intelligence inside his circle, so he wonders who the mole in his circle is, and it just you know distracts him. But the second school of thought is that you put out all that intelligence because you hope that somehow it permeates the Russian people, gets the Russian people. So this is the question, Paul. You're an average Russian citizen. You know What access do you have to Western media, to uncensored media? Can you get it over your phone? Can you log on to the internet? How, how do you find out how the rest of the world sees Russia? I would say it's, if we're talking about Russian citizens in Russia, mm-hmm. uh, they get a good deal of their information through social media, like TikTok. Um, if you are a so-called intelligentsia, in, say in arts or Academy of Sciences, whatever, you would read Novaya Gazeta and Echo Moskvi, and then you would get basically what I would regard as the true picture. Right. Uh, um, if you read, if you read uh, Kremlin media, and I, I like to read TASS, which is a carryover from the Soviet period, and they do have a good uh, series that's in English, then you, then you get what the Russian people hear. And what they hear is a remarkable message, which is that there is no war. So you cannot use the word war in mm-hmm. any publication. And the Novaya Gazeta uh, and Echo Moskvi have been basically thrown off the air for using the word war. So it's a special, in, in Kremlin language, it's a special military operation. 
it's, it's located largely in the Donbass area, this disputed Donbass area. Uh, so it's a relatively small thing. It's no worry. Um, it's a special military operation. Mm -hmm. And then uh, that's what you hear. And if you then uh, have a neighbor and the neighbor says, my son was killed in Ukraine or, you know, something that, that tells you what's really going on, you, you would be terribly shocked. It's notable that older people are the ones who, who really believe this Kremlin story. Younger people do not. And probably the explanation is that uh, the younger people are on social media. And social media is very blunt. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, we can't appreciate this being Westerners, but you see images coming out of Russia and to us, they're kind of laughable. It's Putin riding bare chested on a horse or my favorite is when he plays hockey. And you've seen this too, Paul, where he goes out and he scores six goals and <laughs> he's the conquering hero. And you wonder, do people actually buy this or not? Or they just kind of see it for what it is. But it raises this question of to really kind of how gullible the Russian people are. And I guess what maybe they're willing to tolerate in terms of what their leadership offers. You ask a very good question. I don't know any exact answer. I could only say that in uh, in public opinion polls, and there are one or two relatively credible organizations that do this uh, polling, only 5% will say uh, these hostilities with Ukraine are our fault, namely Russians' fault. Right. Um, the 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 main villain is the United States, which is um, uh, the puppet master for NATO. So that's that's the story they hear. There is no war. Uh, the most important message that Putin wants them to hear, and this is what I work on a lot, is casualties. Mm -hmm. uh, he goes to great lengths to conceal that there are casualties. Uh, during the um, 2004, uh, 2014 war, uh, they kept pretty well concealed the casualties. Uh, remarkably, I think yesterday or the day before that, the Ministry of Defense issued a statement saying there are casualties. And that was, that was it. There are casualties. I'm looking for the best possible estimates. And I, I think the best possible estimates would would be around three or 4,000 uh, Russian soldiers killed, mainly cannon fodder or conscripts. And if you look at um, Afghanistan, a 10-year war, basically, that was 15,000. So right. they're going to get to Afghanistan pretty soon. Right. So uh, Ukrainian officials uh, will tell you that uh, this is uh, in the New York Times today. Um, they claim that they've killed about 5,300 Russian troops. Uh, the Pentagon uh, today, Paul, said that a more uh, you know, sensible number, a more realistic number might be somewhere around 2,000. And I think Putin put out numbers earlier today, which is something like 548. But noticeable here is that the, the Russian defense minister, Paul, uh, today said for the first time, or he said this on Sunday, actually, that, quote, there are dead and wounded Russian troops. They wouldn't offer numbers. Yeah. You mentioned Afghanistan. I mentioned this was part of what led to them eventually get out of Afghanistan. 
so many soldiers return wounded, missing limbs and so forth, you can't cover up what's going on. Afghanistan, the, the Afghanistan war is accredited with being a major factor in the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union because it did return this. First of all, it was a, it was a lost war. Uh, secondly, massive casualties, uh, more massive uh, wounded soldiers. Many, and this, and remember, they were in Afghanistan with the drugs, and so a whole generation, whole generation of Afghan, um, Af, uh, excuse me, of Russian uh, soldiers who became addicted. So. Um, if Ukraine is like Afghanistan, the consequences for Russia and Putin will be enormous. I saw a report the other day that said this could be Afghanistan in this regard, that they could take uh, Kiev within a week or so from you and I talking today on Tuesday the 2nd, a week or from now Kiev could be taken. Uh, he could have achieved his military goals maybe three or four months after that. And then this estimate, I think it was an intelligence estimate by the U.S., said what will come next is 15 to 20 years of just bloody engagement and guerrilla fighting, at which time the Russians will pull out and get away, by which time Putin will probably be gone, the whole change in leadership. But let me ask you this, Paul. Um, you see Putin talking about NATO, talking about the West. Uh, he gave that speech uh, two Mondays ago that, uh, my God, what a speech. It uh, was just amazing. I, I've written speeches for a living. I've seen very few things like that in terms of the rambling and the discourse, the logic and so forth. But Paul, Russia has been dabbling in democracy and being open for 30 years now. And yet here we are after 30 years of the West coming in and investing and in theory, Russians free to travel around the rest of the world and goods and services coming in, a chance to show that maybe the West isn't as awful as you might think it is. It still seems very easy and effective for Putin to engage in this fearful, you know, fear monitoring about NATO and about the West in general. Why does it work for him? Is this as simple as 30 years of change versus centuries of tradition? Or is Putin especially good at uh, propaganda when it comes to NATO? Those Russians who think that Russia has nothing to answer to with respect to this war that's ongoing now believe that NATO is poised on its boundaries, ready to jump. So this requires you to think, uh, well, is, is it the Swedish army that's going to come in? Is it the Finns? You know, the, the, the Poles have a pretty formidable army, but who in the world is going to come, come in and, and take, take Russia? And the argument is, that, well, they're going to uh, retake Crimea. And so any moment now it's going to happen. And the, the selling point for this limited operation, which think is going on. The selling point is uh, they want Crimea and Crimea is ours. So Putin got enormous boost out of Crimea. Mm -hmm. Perhaps he thinks he can get a boost out of, out of this. But uh, from what I see and from the fact that the military operation is just not going as it was supposed to go, it was supposed to be that um, the Russian troops would march in, they'd be gre greeted by uh, welcoming Ukrainians who are being freed from this uh, neo-fascist regime in Kiev, headed, by the way, by a Jewish president. Uh, I don't think that enters into Putin's propaganda, but your question is deeper. How did we get here? And 
Putin came in uh, and Putin's first four or five years were pretty good. The economy was good. He was saying the right things about private enterprise and so forth. And then things started going the other way. Uh, and I think underneath all of this is the fact that uh, Putin's main objective is to stay in power. It's not rebuild the Soviet empire or any, any patriotic sense of duty. It is, I'll do anything to stay in power. And, and it's well known that he came to power by killing some 2,000 of his own people in these apartment bombings. So after that happened, we should have known this, this guy is dangerous. Uh, we didn't realize what his real thinking was until 2007 when he spoke to this NATO conference in Munich. Right. So um, his, his security apparatus, his, secure, his forces that are there to protect his regime, I one time calculated, are about as large as the regular army. So he has something as large as the regular army called the Russian Guard. The Russian Guard is about as big as his army. And its job is to keep him in power. So, and his major worry is Maidan, the Maidan, the Kiev Maidan revolution, that it could happen to him. And he cannot, one would ask, why do you go to such lengths with respect to Ukraine? The answer is very simple. Ukraine had its Maidan. Maidan can be infectious. So if I don't take care of uh, Ukraine, if Ukraine is a success, joins the West, I'm done for. That's the way he thinks. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that, Paul. I get emails from friends almost every day saying, why can't we take out Putin? And I just refer them to U.S. laws that are very specific about not killing leaders of other countries. But this raises a question, though. If something were to happen to Vladimir Putin, let's say the oligarchs, really don't like the economic sanctions and they don't like the pain and they think this man has to go now. What would come next in Russia after Putin? Because uh, I know there's a, there's a constitution, there's probably a law of succession in order, but realistically, who would fill that vacuum? That's a question no one can answer. Mm -hmm. um, what, the warning that I hear is what could come after Putin could, could be not very pretty. Uh, because the most likely thing that would happen would be a disintegration of Russia, which has the largest land landmass of any country. You mean, uh, the, you mean the, federation, the federation would break up, is what you're saying? Yes, yes, right. that's probably what, what would happen. But to tell the truth now with what Putin has exhibited over the last week or so, uh, I would take a breakup of the Russian Federation over continuation of his of his rule uh, to kill him. Uh, who would do it? I don't know. Um, so I, I think we might waste time if I just speculated on this. No, I don't want you speculated on it either. Uh, let's talk about Ukraine for a few minutes, Paul. It's now become very trendy on social media to say I stand with Ukraine and post photos of the Ukrainian flag and so forth. But uh, explain what Ukraine is, actually is to people and who Ukrainians are. There's a bit, well another feature of 
Putin's propaganda is that there never was a, a Ukraine and there never will be a Ukraine because right. Ukraine has always been a part of this greater Russia, right. which he calls um, Novaya Russia, New Russia. Uh, so, and uh, the fact that Ukraine exists at all is due to uh, Russia, which saved it from the Nazis. Uh, and there, and he, and he, he either wrote or ghost wrote a um, lo- lengthy treatise about the fact that Ukraine is not a country. He was perhaps partially right until he invaded, until he uh, annexed Crimea and invaded East Ukraine. That it turns out was, I would say, the first of his great mistakes because at that point. He did create a, a Ukrainian nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what's going on right now is the fact that Putin is revitalizing or recreating NATO. So the, the organization really against which this, uh, this war is being fought is being strengthened by what he's doing. So he's regarded as this major or this brilliant tactician who makes really big mistakes. Mm-hmm. I think at this point, it'd be hard for anyone to say he, he made a good move with this mm-hmm. invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. The economic consequences are formidable, are incredible. And by the way, I want to give kudos to uh, Michael Bernstam of, of Hoover, who really uh, has, has done the blueprints for the sanctioning of the central bank, which is really biting. So we know that Ukraine is a landmass, um, approximately between somewhere between uh, Afghanistan and Texas. Uh, I looked up the population, Paul. It is 110% the size of California. I think it's 44 million to our 40 million. Uh, just based on that, it would seem sheer lunacy to go on with, you know, 50,000, 100,000 troops and think you could occupy that many, that much land and that many people, many of whom are armed, uh, we should note. But you mentioned you have, uh, you had one, two uh, daughters-in-law, uh, one past, one current, and they're Ukrainian. What, what is really the defining characteristics of Ukrainian people? We, to Westerners, we think, okay, English people are a certain way, French, Italians, Germans, they all have certain kind of, you know, national cultural Uniqueness is ticks to them, if you will. But what what separates Ukrainians from from others? I, I would say I could not answer that question if you asked me in 2012. Mm-hmm. In 2014, I, I could answer because the invasion of East Ukraine unleashed this this swell of, of um, patriotism. Mm-hmm. So you, you cannot you, you you'd be hard pressed to find patriots in in Russia. It's largely People are saying, well, we don't have any choice. Uh, we have bad government. We have a lot of corruption. Uh, but what can we do? We're just little people. Uh, Ukrainians, I think, view the world differently. Uh, they have become extremely nationalistic. So when you see people around here wearing uh, the Ukrainian colors, you, uh, you say, you know, great. But it's, it's easy to wear these colors. Right. But it's it's uh, difficult when you have to actually fight for it. I I must say that President Zelensky, 
you know, a young guy and a lot of skepticism when he won because he had, his career was that of an actor in a, in a popular series. Right. Uh, the fact that he, he has his family in Kiev, that he's not left, even though the U.S. government has urged him to, left, to leave, that his government is basically intact with uh, Russian columns bearing down on them. That's, that's a George Washington-like accomplishment. So he will either go down in history as, as the George Washington of Ukraine or the martyr of Ukraine. Yeah, he has the he has the soundbite of this uh, whole uh, episode, which was when the United States first said, "You know, we'll we'll take you out, take you out of there." And what did he say? "I need ammo, not a ride." Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, that's that's a that's a guy from Showbiz, by the way, Paul. That's a guy that's very kind of Schwarzenegger like. <laughs> I need guns. No, uh, I have great admiration for him. Okay, so did you watch the president's speech last night? Yes. And he spent 10 minutes on Ukraine. What did you think? Uh, I think it's very easy to uh, uh, urge the American people to support Ukraine. They already do. Um, I think uh, the U.S. government has not done a bad job with respect to these uh, sanctions, Mm -hmm. although I think Europe was the leader and. The most surprising thing there is that Germany is the leader. The the pacifist Ostpolitik Germany has right. really changed its, its stripes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you were to ask the Ukrainians about material, et cetera, that the U.S. has, has delivered, they would uh, diplomatically say, you know, thank you, but uh, not very much. So perhaps one can say Biden did a good job and that there was sort of the word that this is Europe's problem, not ours. And one can say Europe has actually stepped up. The fact that they're really united, that uh, Finland and Sweden are thinking of joining NATO, which is driving Putin up the wall. Right. Uh, You know, whether, whether, Biden had had anything to do with this, I don't know, but um, I would say he he's more of a follower than a leader in this business. So here, Paul, I'm going to steal from our director, Condoleezza Rice. I heard her speaking the other day about this, and she said, when you look at Putin's decision to do this, consider the larger picture of the picture of the world as he saw it. First of all, at home, he had money in the bank, and he thought, okay, if we get sanctioned by the West for doing this, it won't be maybe all that terrible. We can financially ride it out. He saw uh, a Germany with a new chancellor, no longer Angela Merkel, new guy, Mr. Schultz, and thought, okay, he's new. He's not going to be tough. He looked at France and Monsieur Macron and saw that he has an election coming up and he's, you know, fighting for his story, for his life. Boris Johnson, the UK, has uh, been in deep political trouble the past few months. Uh, a couple months ago, it looked like his days were numbered. Maybe he rides that. We don't know. And then he looked all the way to the West, Paul, and he saw Joe Biden and he saw America just absolutely bungling its way out of Afghanistan after 20 years not one being of, of being tired of forever wars. And so he came to the conclusion that the West is weak. They're not united and he could get away with this. But, and here's the but, Paul, he didn't get the Ukrainian side. Do you think, Paul, I know I'm trying to get you inside of Putin's head and who knows what's inside Putin's head. 
How could he have misjudged the resistance to his going out? Did he think it was as simple as they would go in there and they'd be greeted with, you know, flowers like, like, you know, like, like the, like the allies coming into France in 1944. How could he so badly bungle the resistance to what he did? Remember, this is his second bungle job. Yeah. The first one was the, his idea of, of, of new Russia, which would in, include Russia, Belarus, and a good part of Ukraine. He, he thought as well that um, his troops would be greeted with flowers. He didn't learn his lesson. He now decides to attack Ukraine. Uh, his game plan, uh, I think, is fairly well known, and that was the, the, his, his tanks are in Kiev in two days. They're greeted uh, by um, cheering fans of Russia mm -hmm. the, who um, are very happy to be relieved of this neo-fascist government led by, as I say, a Jewish president. Right. Uh, so uh, that was his plan, and it's, it's not being uh, uh, fulfilled. So he must be uh, enraged right now. And I believe there are reports because he has met with the oligarchs. The oligarchs, by the way, are very uh, uh, interested in sort of preserving their, their perks. So they're, they're now speaking up a little bit saying, you know, we don't really have anything to do with this. We, we don't like it, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge, huge miscalculation that, uh, that the Ukrainians actually fought back, that they actually fought back and they're, they're falling back today. And you, you, you see reports of, major of important cities, you know, changing hands. One day the Russians have the, 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 the city, the next day the Ukrainians have it. So this is very bloody stuff. Personally, I think um, a casualty number of 2000 is way low. Uh, I think it's more like six, just judging from the, the level of um, military activity. Right. They again are are employing a portable. Um, uh, what are they called? They incinerate bodies. Um, what's it called anyway? The, they have portable in body incinerator incinerators, so they don't have to pick up the dead. They just put them in the incinerator. Kind right. of um, unpleasant topic, but that's what they do. Yeah. And this also allows them to, to conceal the. Uh, number of dead yeah paul i'm interested in young russians right now in this regard uh first of all apple um today or yesterday i guess announcing that it's going to halt uh, product sales in russia so i think if you want to make young people very unhappy with their existence you take away their iphones talk to your grandkids about this you punish them by taking away their phones you've gotten your message oh parents. i i heard uh, i heard about that immediately yeah so there's that um, from in, my daughter-in-law Right, and it's not only that; it is that that Apple, you know, operates turnstiles and subways, and yeah. you, you don't really know all that Apple does. Right. So there's that, and then second, one of my favorite stories I was Paul the accounts of Russian soldiers going into Ukraine, and these soldiers getting on Tinder right away and trying to hook up with Ukrainian women. It. I don't know what it says about young Russians or not. Maybe the West is having an influence on them in ways we don't understand, but it just doesn't sound like a big, mean Soviet war machine, does it? I looked at the numbers, and I think uh, conscripts are about 40, 
40% or so. And it's clear they don't want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they, they are afraid. They don't like the idea of shooting at people, at men and women who look like them, look like their mothers, look like their grandmothers. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I would say, my big question is this, this five kilometer long um, um, line of tanks and military vehicles that keeps approaching Kiev but never seems to, get, to go anywhere. So what in the world is going on? And we've picked up uh, stories about the drivers puncturing the gas tank so they can't right. go anywhere. Right. This is not a motivated. This is not a motivated army. Uh, it, we're we're operating on anecdotes, but when you add anecdotes together, right? They, they have a they pattern. Mean no, you read accounts of the uh, their supply lines are strained. They can't get fuel to the front. It's sort of like watching, ironically, it's like watching the Germans invade uh, Soviet Union in 1941. And there's such a vast amount of land to to cover that you eventually out, you know, you can't keep up the supplies. And so the tanks run out of gas, and you have to stop. So yeah, they can't keep the tanks fueled. They can't keep food for the troops and so forth. So again, it's just a surprise, Paul, that just, you know, for, you know, Putin's been thinking about doing this for years, but when they actually go into action, it doesn't seem right. So let's let's look a little bit in the future here, Paul. If this scenario does play out, uh, in which he does manage to capture capture the capital and secure a massive land, and then now we're looking at a prolonged just fight in a war with an occupying force. What can the United States do in terms of just helping Ukraine in terms of this is going to come down to at least two things, Paul. One is going to be the question of humanitarian aid to help Ukrainians who are you know, starving in parts of the country. There'll be the question of surreptitious military aid. But then the third one, Paul, and let's, let's actually talk about this one. Uh, it's the flow of information. How do you keep them in touch with the West and how do you keep them abreast of what's going on in the world? How do you, how do you, how do you communicate with them? Um, let's see if I can answer that. Uh, I, l- let me take a step back. Mm-hmm. The one thing that was missing from Biden's speech is we're not in this for the short run. We're in this right. for the long run. And this is a big part of Putin's calculations. These sanctions, well, we'll get tired. the West will get tired of them. That They want vodka from, uh, from Russia. So just be patient. All this will go away. Mm-hmm. So the the biggest question to say the U.S. is, are we in this for the long run? Right. And um, uh, I would say Biden did not transmit that message. So that, that's uh, that's what I'm getting at here, Paul. The Cold War was fought obviously with deterrence and resolution, but also there was a vast information war uh, in which we had Voice of America and we found ways to send send messages behind the Iron Curtain. So I'm wondering, Paul, this will be our final question, as I know you have to go. I'm just wondering if it's time for the United States to start rethinking VOA and how to communicate into Eastern Europe if we are indeed looking at the possibility of Putin trying to create, for lack of a better phrase, another Iron Curtain. Well, the only, uh, uh, I I think VOA, um, Radio Liberty, Mm -hmm. need uh, to be really beefed up considerably uh, and we need the technology to avoid being uh, being wiped uh, out of the information system. Uh, so we uh, that would be a big help. I uh, if you remember the first days of the Afghan War, 
you know, which where we took Afghanistan with basically no troops. We relied on this southern northern alliance, I believe it was called. And the the, the battle was won by about uh, you know 10, 15 CIA operatives mm. with uh, with radio communications. So we clearly and the Ukrainians don't have this kind of ability. Although they've done a remarkable job, I believe, in thwarting like false flag operations uh, right. and anticipating certain moves and so forth. So um, clandestine assistance, I would say, would be extremely important. Uh, the only way Putin could pull this off is by turning Ukraine into a police state. You can't just install your puppet and leave. So if he's serious, he's going to have to create a police state. Uh, and if you're if you're fighting a police state, you better have people on your side who really know what to do. That just sounds like a losing proposition, Paul, because it will bleed. He will have installed an unpopular government. There'll be insurrection. And again, it's such a large piece of land that he's trying to control. People forget that we went into uh, Kuwait um, for the first Gulf War. I think H.R. McMaster told me this. We mobilized something like 700,000 troops to invade basically the size of Rhode Island. So again, he is trying to cover a large amount of land with minimal troops, and it's just going to bleed and just wear him down, I think. At least that's that's how I read it. I'm not a foreign policy expert, but it seems pretty obvious that he has just made a bad calculation here. I believe you're right. Um, we just have to wait and see. We're now, the his, his war plan was Kiev in three days. What right. day are we in now? Seven? And uh, that um, five-mile-long column, it's not, and that five-mile column doesn't seem to be going anywhere. No, it sure doesn't. So we'll, we'll see. Okay. Well, you have to go somewhere, Paul, so we're going to call an end to this podcast. But, hey, I enjoyed talking to you today, and uh, I hope your granddaughter is safe in uh, Kiev. I uh, hope as well. And, Bill, it was a real pleasure. Your questions were quite good, and I think the – American public or whoever listens to this will will learn something that is of value. Thank you, Paul. Keep writing and keep posting us on the uh, updates on your granddaughter if you can. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Paul Gregory is on Twitter, brave man that he is. His Twitter handle is at Paul R underscore Gregory. Let me repeat that, at Paul R underscore Gregory. And I mentioned his blog at the beginning of this podcast. It is called What Paul Gregory is Writing About. You can just Google that and you'll find it. The URL, if you want to be formal about this, is paulgregorysblog.blogspot.com. You can also keep up with Paul via the Hoover Daily Report, which again is found at the Hoover Institution's website, www.hoover.org. Again, click on the Publications tab. Go to where it says subscribe for Daily Report. It will arrive in your inbox weekdays every time Paul writes or gives commentary. Uh, You'll find that he writes. He's on the John Batchelor radio show. Um, You want to listen to him. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, 
please visit hoover.org.